I want to begin this morning by telling you a little bit about, uh, about Billy Graham. Everyone probably knows that name, one of the most uh, famous uh, evangelists, uh, really, uh, uh, in, in, our, in our nation's history. He was uh, invited to attend a special luncheon in Charlotte, North Carolina, many, many years ago. And uh, he, was, uh, he was the guest of honor, and he wasn't really sure if he wanted to attend it or not. And he talked with the organizers, and they said, look, you know, uh, Dr. Graham, we're not asking you to come and give a big speech or talk or anything. We just simply want to want to honor you. And so he uh, he agreed, and he and he went. And and while he was there, he did stand and and share a bit of a testimony. And and uh, he uh, he got up to the front of this luncheon and spoke to those in attendance and said, you know, you may uh, notice today. He said, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm wearing a, a new suit. And he said, uh, my, my children, and especially my grandchildren, have told me that, that I've gotten a little sloppy in my older years, so I went out and bought a brand new suit uh, for this occasion and one other. He said, this, uh, th- I want to wear this new suit for today, but it's also going to be the suit that I'm going to be buried in. And he said, with that in mind, let me tell you a story. And so Billy Graham, as only he could, started this story about Albert Einstein on a train, that Albert Einstein's leaving Princeton, and he's on his way, and, and uh, the conductor comes through the train car where he's sitting and is, is punching everyone's tickets, and Einstein's looking feverishly for his ticket. He can't find it, and of course, the conductor recognizes him and says, Dr. Einstein, it's, it's okay. I'm really quite confident that you bought a ticket. And he said, it's okay. So that he just kept on going, and as he was finishing at the car, he just turned back, and he happened to notice the esteemed Albert Einstein on his hands and knees looking around underneath his seat on the floor. And the conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, really, like I said, it's quite all right. I know who you are. I know, I know, where, I, I know you have a ticket. You don't need to, to, uh, to try to find it anymore. And Dr. Einstein looked up from the floor and said, son, he said, I too also know who I am. The problem is I don't know where I'm going. And so as only Billy Graham could do, he said, uh, he said, when you see me at some point when I'm wearing this suit, I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. And, uh, of course, what a faithful man who handled the Word of God for, genera- for decade after decade, several generations, uh, enjoyed his, uh, his evangelistic ministry. But he had this confidence knowing, and he was able to share that with the group that was there celebrating uh, his life. And I, I know, as, as we've already mentioned today, Stephanie mentioned this, and, and Myra to a degree as well, that, that having that assurance of salvation is such a gift. It's such a, a wonderful blessing to be able to, to, to think through the question of assurance, to think through that question, how do I know that I know? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know what I, what I did or how I came to Christ was, was genuine? And I, I have a similar experience. I remember I responded to the Lord at the age of 10 and, and had, uh, at the time, a, a mom who was, was uh, you know, very instrumental and informative and, and helping me understand the, the things of, of, of Christ. And, and uh, I remember going to children's church. Ultimately, that's where I, I heard the gospel and, and responded to it. it was in kids' church and uh, prayed to receive the Lord. And then, do you know what happened over the next year or so? 
I kept wondering and looking back and thinking, did I say that prayer just right? Maybe I missed a phrase of it. And so I'd, I'd go to bed at night and I'd, I'd pray it again. And then, then maybe the next night I'd think, well, maybe I, maybe I really didn't mean it. So, uh, you know, this is pretty, these, the stakes are high, right? I mean, we're talking about eternity. Even at the age of 10, I understood that. So I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray it again. This time I'm going to mean it. Every single night, it seems, I was struggling with this. And so maybe you've been there and, and, and you know that doubt can really cripple, can't it? Because until that gets nailed down, it's, it's really hard to progress into to other understanding of, of, of who Christ is or how he wants to work in us and through us. And so I think that probably at every point at, in, in someone's spiritual journey, those questions arise. And it may not be just when we're young or just when we're new to the faith. It could come even well after we've been walking with the Lord. And so the book of 1 John is a small little book tucked away near the end of the New Testament, and it is packed full of answers that relate to this question. How do I know that I know? And so whether that's something that resonates with you this morning, whether that's something that you may want to have as you, as you counsel another, maybe like my mom did with me, maybe you have a child or a grandchild that at some point will approach you, I think you'll find that in the book of 1 John, there's a number of answers that come through. Now, the interesting thing about the structure of 1 John is it doesn't just go through and, and in, a, in, a, in a systematic way say, here's answer one, here's answer two, here's answer three. You can know you're saved because of this, and then another chapter this, and then another chapter this. What happens is they, they, they kind of work together, and John, John reinforces these themes. And so you may see something emerge in chapter one that is there again in chapter two, which we'll see today. Or maybe you'll see it in chapters 3 and 4, and it's a similar theme. And so we won't take this completely straight through, as you'll notice as we get a little deeper into the series. But I would encourage you, in just a sitting, sit down and read. Read this little epistle, this little letter written by the Apostle John. And I think you'll just find that it is so rich, and there's so much that is there that, uh, that you'll find beneficial. So we'll be looking at this over the last number of weeks. And so as we do that, again, the title of the series is Without a Doubt. And my prayer is that just like the picture you see here or the picture on your bulletin, that, that this can be a time in which you just drive a stake in the ground, if need be, to be equipped to know how to answer the questions of doubt when they arise. I invite your attention to the beginning of 1 John. As you're turning there, I would like to give just a few words of, of introduction. I think we can all guess that the author of 1 John is, of course, John. John, one of the 12 disciples. He and his brother uh, James were known as the sons of Zebedee, but uh, also known as the sons of what? Sons of Thunder, right. So he's one of those two. He was very close to Christ. He even referred to himself in the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved. And so he just felt a real close uh, connection with our Lord. Uh, obviously, he wrote these three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. 
And so uh, he is one that, uh, that, that, that the Lord uh, used, the Holy Spirit inspired to give us a good portion here of the New Testament. When you look at these uh, letters, you see them as, uh, as letters that were written to an audience. And, and uh, unlike some of Paul's letters that were, that were specifically written to certain groups of people, churches, and so forth, the, uh, the epistle of 1 John is, is what's known as a general epistle. Not, not given to a specific group, but written to, to everyone who would receive it. And it may be to those who are, who are dealing with the question of doubt. But it, it, a secondary reason in which he wrote this was to combat a heresy that was gaining traction in that time known as Gnosticism. And it comes from the, the word knowledge and that there was a group of people that thought they had an elevated knowledge. And in, in doing so, they were, they were adding to the testimony of Scripture. They were adding to, to they were changing doctrine, particularly the way that, that the, the body and the material world was seen uh, versus, uh, versus the spiritual. And it even had some implications on how they viewed who Christ was. And so as you read First John, and we'll touch on this some, you'll see that, that there is an apologetic sense to this as well. So there's the pastoral sense in which John, as an older statesman of the church, if you will, is writing to believers to encourage them to have assurance of faith. But at the same time, he's, he's providing some warnings along the way of, of other doctrines that can creep in. And of course, those doctrines themselves can undermine the faith and cause doubt. And so they do certainly tie together. The key verse, I believe, in the uh, epistle of 1 John is in chapter 5, verse 13. It says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See that last phrase there? That you may know. I served uh, for several years in Athens, Greece, which is a, a country that, uh, that by and large holds to the, the Greek Orthodox faith. And one of the, the, uh, the aspects of that faith that's different from ours is the, the understanding of one can be assured of, of, of salvation. One can have confidence in knowing that God has provided everlasting life. And so this was a verse that, that as I served in Greece was on my mind a lot because I knew that the people that, that I was serving and that I lived around struggled with assurance. And there are also uh, uh, faiths here in, in, in our own country that, that uh, at times can even, can even uh, discount whether assurance is even possible. And maybe you've come up and, and come through one of those faith systems. And so this is a key verse. And I think it's very helpful for us to, to see that as an overall theme for the book. I've given the question, how can I know for sure that I'm saved as a theme question? But as I said, there's also that secondary theme which defends uh, the true identity of Christ. The structure of the book, as I said, is not to take one point at a time and then move to another. The, the main points are repeated throughout, which is good for emphasis. But from a teaching standpoint, it's not quite like some of the other studies we've had where we can just kind of work all the way through uh, verse by verse. We'll have to take some things in a different order just to keep the themes intact. The further we get into this series, that will become evident. I'd also like to mention one resource, and I'm going to quote from it this morning. It's a, uh, a brand new book called Assured. And it's by uh, the author Greg Gilbert. Its uh, subtitle is Discover Grace, Let Go of Guilt, and Rest in Your Salvation. And it was uh, published earlier this year. I'm going to quote some from it this morning. But if you're looking for a resource, this one is solid. 
This one's really good. And if you have, if you have a child or grandchild or maybe one that you just want to have uh, uh, on, the, on the shelf ready, I, th- I know there's a number of books, and I've even referenced others, but, but when I saw this one that was, that was recently published, I really wanted to, uh, to, uh, to offer this one as well. In the book, Gilbert says that there are four main sources of assurance, but they work differently. And here's what he says. The four main sources are this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promises of God, the witness of the Spirit, we're going to touch a little bit on that one today, and the fruits of obedience. We'll be looking at that one as the series unfolds. And they they don't function the same way. He says two of these sources, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God, according to the Bible, are driving sources of assurance. He, 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 He views these as like a fountainhead of assurance. The gospel and the promises of God, the objective truth which is given it's, 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 it's given to us in the Word of God. It's something that we are to receive, to believe, to accept as true, and that that's the real fountainhead. They are the driving source. Then he says the other two, such as the, the fruit of obedience, they are not a driving source, but a confirming source of assurance. Not one in which we should put our faith, but one that can nevertheless serve to confirm our sense that we belong to Christ. And so you can see the, the, the reason why he says this, because if we only look to the fruits of obedience, we could very quickly have a gospel that is what? Works-based, right? That we're only looking to what we can do or what we can achieve. And he says, no, we begin with the fountainhead, the gospel. We begin with the promises of God as found in his word. And these other, these other uh, uh, sources come alongside. And then he speaks also of the witness of the Spirit. He says this is a supernatural source of assurance in which the Holy Spirit gives birth in our souls to a deep and profound sense of comfort, security, and assurance. And so uh, we'll be looking at that to a degree this morning, and, and we'll, uh, we'll look at these. And then he gives an analogy. Uh, He says, just as there is a difference between these four, he says, think about this. There is a difference in the design of a car, a profound difference between the driver of speed and the confirmer of speed. Now, just in case you misunderstand, he's not talking about the driver and the front seat passenger, right? That's not the confirmer of speed, although Tim Hawkins has a really funny way of explaining the confirmer of of speed if you ever want to watch one of his videos. But what Grilbert is saying is the accelerator is the driver of speed. The speedometer is what? The confirmer of speed, right? And so these first two are drivers, whereas the others are like the speedometer that show us. They give evidence that there is speed that is occurring. Here's what he says. One of the results is that the speedometer on the dashboard indicates or shows or confirms how fast the car is going. But the speedometer is a sign of speed, not the source of speed. So if we were able to take the glass off the the front of the gauge as we're driving and grab that little orange needle and move it further to the right, what would happen? Nothing, right? Yeah, we might. The accelerator, the accelerator is the pedal, right? And so he's saying that there are, there are things that can confirm, and we don't want to take those confirming sources and, and, and misunderstand them. 
Otherwise, we may just go full heavy on into looking at works and what we are doing rather than looking at the promises and the gospel itself. So a very, very interesting, interesting uh, analogy that he gives and one that we may, may come back to again. With that in mind, let's jump into the first few verses of 1 John. We're going to look at the first four this morning, and so I'd like to read them, and then we'll, uh, we'll break it into a couple of points. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So let's jump in to the first couple of verses this morning. First point is this, as we consider the foundation of our faith, we see that it is a faith that is based on testimony, specifically the testimony of the apostles. So John is saying, the reason I have certainty about what I'm teaching and what I'm writing is that, that I've observed Jesus. I walked with him. I saw him. I saw his miracles. I saw him on the other side of the resurrection. I'm an eyewitness to who he is. It's worth noting here that John, in reality, is establishing that Jesus and his gospel is objective truth. And if you, if you study apologetics, those who give a defense of the faith or the defense of the reliability of the New Testament... One of the, the points that they make is that there were eyewitnesses. Those who wrote, those who, 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 who wrote what they saw, but also others who corroborated it. There were so many witnesses that, uh, that it is one of the reasons that it is established. In fact, author and speaker J. Warner Wallace makes a great point. He says, eyewitness authority is inherent to the Gospels. He said they're written as historical narratives. The life of Jesus is intertwined with historical events, locating it geographically and historically. The New Testament repeatedly affirms the historical eyewitness nature. The key figures who serve to validate the history of Jesus as eyewitnesses. And as you think about it, it's not just John writing in this epistle about being an eyewitness. We can go all the way back into the, the, the life of Jesus in which he says that, that his gospel will be communicated by witnesses. In fact, it was in Luke, excuse me, in John chapter 1, first of all, that we read about John the Baptist. It says in verse 7, he was, he was a man sent from God, verse 6, verse 7, he came as a witness to testify. And then later Jesus would make a statement about these apostles, not John the Baptist necessarily, but he's speaking now at this point to the disciples. And he says in Luke chapter 24, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. He's saying this before he goes to the cross. 
and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's already preparing the disciples. You're seeing it happen. John is among them. He's watching it unfold before his eyes. And then later in Acts chapter 1, they would be told, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, you will be my witnesses. And there is an unbroken chain from that time. And in fact, we are part of that because we also are called to be witnesses. Now, are witnesses different than theirs in the sense that they were physically present with the physical Christ? They were eyewitnesses. But that, that testimony has been given from spiritual generation to spiritual generation. And today, those witnesses are us. Now, Peter also spoke of this. Second Peter chapter 1, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So why am I making this point? Obviously, it's something that John is communicating here in the beginning of the book of 1 John. He is setting the foundation that this is a reason why the faith can be trusted Because trustworthy people were eyewitnesses of what took place. And as I said, even today, the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the New Testament, even is connected back to these very historical eyewitness accounts, which indeed are objective truth. Now, I know that flies in the face of the the age in which we live, an age which speaks more about relative truth, if there is such a thing. You decide what's right for you. I decide what's right for me. Well, that's not the way the Bible operates. The Bible operates that this is the truth, that Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And so we have to guard ourselves against the thinking of the age and remember that the Bible is objective truth. That's its claim. J. Warner Wallace said it this way, the Gospels were written as eyewitness accounts within the long and rich evidential tradition. He's speaking of evidence of the early Christian community. The early church placed a high value on the evidence provided by Jesus and the authority of the apostles as eyewitnesses. The Gospels were accepted and affirmed due largely to their status as eyewitness accounts. This authority was inherent to the Gospels. As we've already read, it was commissioned by Jesus, affirmed by the Gospel authors, confirmed by the first believers, foundational to the growth of the church, and used to validate the New Testament. So really, that is a summary of the first point of what we're looking at, that the foundation of our faith goes back to objective truth, eyewitness accounts. We look to John, we look to Peter, we look to others whom the Lord used as his witnesses. Secondly, the foundation of faith is a faith based on personal relationship. And so we see this as we move into verses 3 and 4. One of the key words for the epistle is the word fellowship. 
And we like that word, right? We use that word here. We, we, we think of the fellowship that we have with one another, what we share in common, right? But we also think of the, the vertical nature of fellowship, right? That, that fellowship we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, what we have in terms of, a, of an agreement, a partnership with Him, that's what koinonia, the Greek word means fellowship is, is being united in purpose. It's a strong word, and it speaks of experience, doesn't it? We have fellowship together. We experience that fellowship as a church family. And Miss Myra gave a testimony of the joy that she has in fellowship, right? In connection and partnership, both as a child and as a, as a grown woman with her church family. This is the, the fellowship. Well, this is what John is speaking of. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see the horizontal and the vertical dimensions of fellowship right in that verse. It works two ways. It's part of that experience of following Christ as Savior. John wants these who are reading his letter to have an experiential knowledge with God. You might say, well, how do we do that today? We don't live in the time in which Jesus is here in flesh, right? But I ask, is there a way that we still experience his life? You see, this is speaking of the word of life that's been revealed, or your version might say the word of life that's been made manifest. Well, how does that happen? It happens through the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we read about earlier. Jesus said it was going to come to the disciples. We have, 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 have experienced the renewal, the regeneration that happens through God's Holy Spirit. And through that, we are in fellowship with God the Father and the Son. Now, as I speak about experience, I do want to clarify one thing. The proof of Christianity or the proof of one's faith does not rest entirely upon experience. Okay, we know that that, if it's, if it's, if it's separated from the promise of the Word of God, if it's separated from the truth of the gospel, experience can be what? Very misleading. And so we, we only want to see it in harmony with what has been revealed from the Word of God. Remember the difference there between the accelerator and the speedometer. Experiences don't prove one's faith. They don't prove the faith of Christianity, but they do provide some assurance or confirmation regarding what one has learned from Scripture. So I think the point we don't want to miss is this. When we are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not just a religion of head knowledge. Does that make sense? It's not just an accumulation of facts. It is a, a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a personal relationship in that the Holy Spirit of God comes and indwells. He's known as the counselor. He's known as the comforter, the paraclete. He comes to live within those who belong to Him. If we jump over to chapter 2 of 1 John, we read something about this. It says, but you have an anointing, verse 20, from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So there's a connection here with the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and 
and understanding and knowledge. He speaks of it again in verse 26. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just at his, as it has taught you, remain in him. And you might be saying, wait a minute, so you don't, is the Bible saying we don't need teachers? Because in other parts of the Bible it says that we do need teachers and that there's even the spiritual gift of, of teaching and, and the call to teach and to preach. Well, I think the, 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 the point here isn't that we don't need those others, but that there is ultimately a Holy Spirit who is a teacher. He helps one to understand. He enlightens His Word. He gives insight. He's there present to help make sure that we are understanding. Even beyond that, the Spirit of God gives an innate sense of God in which the truth of Jesus makes sense to us. He's at work. Maybe you remember the time in which you were beginning to hear the Word of God and, and to receive it, and you, you sensed an understanding that maybe you had not had before that. Does anybody, anybody remember that experience? Well, it's the, the Holy Spirit giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. In fact, John Calvin would write about this. And in the Latin, it was referred to as the sensus divinitatis, or a sense of God. He wrote about this in his institutes, and, and here's what he said. He said that there exists in the human mind, and, in, and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity, that sensus divinitatis. We hold to be beyond dispute, since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. As I read that quote, I'm, I'm reminded that we're, we're talking about two things here. We're talking about just the, the general revelation of God, that, that people created in His image would have a sense that God exists. And most people understand that. I know that there are some who, who claim to be atheists. I recognize that, but in general, there is this understanding that there is a God. Now, the book of Romans, the first couple chapters, tell us that, that because of sin, it has an, a, an effect of, of numbing that sense or doling that sense where, yes, there will be some who, who look and don't see. They don't hear. It's through that, the, uh, the, the sin in this world that that, uh, that, that sense can be doled. And so he's speaking of this, this sense that makes it possible for people to understand that God exists. But then there is an intensity of that when the Holy Spirit is giving one eyes to see and ears to hear. And as we look at 1 John chapter 2, we're seeing this, this idea of the anointing from the Holy One. This idea that He's at work. God created us with this ability to perceive Him. And now we need the Spirit to give us back our eyesight. It's a process called regeneration. It's the restoration of an old lost sense, the sense of the divine. Jesus spoke of this in John 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And out of that, there is a verse of assurance. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. This idea of of having uh, the ability to hear his voice. The New Testament has this phrase, ears to hear. And you'll, you'll find it in the, in the Gospels. You'll also find it in the book of Revelation. And I, I, I read through several of those verses this week. You might want to do a little word study and, and read through some of them. Here's an example. Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, Let anyone who has ears to hear do what? Listen. Revelation chapter 2, this phrase is used a couple of times. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. As I was reading those verses this week, I stopped and thought, am I listening? Am I allowing that that divine sense? Am 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 I hindering it by sin? Am I hindering it with distraction? Or am I listening? Do we have ears to hear? As followers of Christ, absolutely we do. But let's make sure that we are intent Let's make sure that we are intent in our worship. We're intent in our time in the Word. So, so it would be so sad to go through a day in the, in the Spirit speaking, and I am not listening. And it's not just sad for me. It's sad for all of us, right? I mean, we want to, we want to hear Him. We want to start our day pursuing Him, hearing Him in His Word, hearing Him as we see Him at work around us. Let us have ears, dear Lord, to hear what Your Spirit is saying to us. Clearly some do and some don't. The sense of the divine and the restoration of that sense is purely the work of God's grace. Well, back in 1 John, we're seeing that fellowship with God is through His Spirit. It's a personal relationship. And so I want to emphasize that because for some here today, that may be where we are, maybe where you are. We may have some in the second service that, that they need to have this understanding that following Christ is a personal relationship. It's coming to Him and seeing who He is, but also seeing who we are in light of that. To see that He is the Savior and that we have need to be forgiven of sin. That He is the one who is sovereign and we are to follow and obey. To trust in Him. This is all having to do with the koinonia. Look back at verse 2. It speaks of the life. The end of of verse 1 speaks of the word of life. This life was revealed or maybe your, your version says was this life was made manifest. What that means is, is a magnification or a coming alive of the gospel to you. It's not the revelation of new words to you, but it's the magnification of the old words that they make sense to you. That you are, they are coming alive in you. You are receiving them personally. J.D. Greer says it this way, it's a genuine experience with God, fellowship. It is the manifestation of the word of the gospel in you or in your heart. It's personally received. What happens then? The cross is understood. The reason for the cross is understood. The heinous nature of sin is recognized and personally owned and grieved over. And then grace, 
Yet grace is, is also more fully understood in light of all of that. That's what it means when it, when it comes alive, when it's made manifest, when it magnifies. These old words of life press in and they become new to you. And that may be your testimony. You can look back. Maybe like me, it was the age of 10 or maybe it was the age of 50. Whenever it was that, that this, this understanding came and you, you repented, you believed, you received, all of this is explained as being in fellowship, relationship with Christ. Of course, it happens first at conversion. John Wesley, he said it this way. He said, the change which God worked in my heart through faith in Christ. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I understood that Christ had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Do you see what's happening? Wesley's not just thinking of something that's out there for everyone else. In this case, he's thinking about how it personally applies to him. And so there's a call there. There's an invitation there to receive the grace of Christ. To have this understanding, but to see that understanding continue to grow as we walk with Christ day by day. John ends the passage by explaining to the readers that he's sharing his testimony so that they can have the same joy. Do you see that there in verse 4? He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. By communicating the truth, it it's gives him joy, but it also brings joy to those who receive it. Can I tell you, to have the assurance of salvation, to have that kind of, of assurance that Billy Graham was able to speak of, folks, that does bring joy, doesn't it? That, that does bring life. That brings energy. That, that's a catalyst for, for, for discovering all the other things that God intends for your life here on earth. But as we move through this series, if there are areas of doubt, and we're going to look at some very specific things, take captive of these thoughts, look at them, work through them, process them, and allow God to use it to give you that joy. So as I close this morning, I want to just ask, do you have fellowship with God? Because really that's the whole point of the Christian faith is to know Him. Yes, we understand the eyewitness testimonies. We can study the authenticity and of, 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 of the, the words of the eyewitnesses and so forth. But beyond that, it's receiving it personally. And again, the invitation today is the foundation of the faith to begin by receiving Christ. And I don't want to take anything for granted. I know that many of us here have been in, in church and have, have uh, professed Christ for many years. But might there be one with us? There might be. One who needs, needs that personal relationship with Christ. Something other than just a head knowledge. But a heart change in coming to Him. As we do each week, we have some tables over to your left. A prayer and encouragement team will be waiting there. And there may be some questions that have emerged from the message today. And you'd like to talk with someone about them, about those questions. Well, during the, the response song or when that song is over, feel free to stop by, talk with them. Or maybe you're here and you have something taking place in your life and, and you, you just need a brother or sister to, 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 to stand with you in prayer. They're there for you on that as well.
any other commitment, spiritual commitment or question, that's the invitation. That's the place to stop before you leave today. But how you respond is up to you. It's between you and the Lord. Let's pray together as the encouragement team makes its way, as the ushers make their way to receive the offering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed your word is true. We thank you, Father, for these who were eyewitnesses of your glory, who faithfully recorded under the inspiration of your spirit so that we would have a record of who you are and what you have done and what you have provided even for us today. So God, we come with with grateful hearts for your provision, and we thank you even that the assurance, the certainty of faith is, is even a gift that comes from you. And so from today and through this time, dear Lord, may you take your word, take your truth, apply it to our hearts and lives. Allow our minds to have these certainties that the doubts, that the fears that the enemy sometimes puts in front of us to seek to cripple us, Lord, may they be overcome. Father, we pray for anyone among us today or even in the next service that does not have that koinonia relationship with you. Father, may you draw them. May you help them to see, give them eyes to see and ears to hear your voice as we seek to respond to you today. Father, we ask your blessing upon the offering for all of the ways that you use it to serve your purposes in this community and to the uttermost parts of this world. We pray your blessing on it now. In Christ's name, amen. Change my heart, oh.